Our text tonight is Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. Hear the word of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. It has been an interesting week. I spent a lot of time this week in pastoral care for people in our community that are suffering. There was a heaviness this week that started on Monday. Almost everybody that I spoke to this week within our community, kind of our greater community here, was in some kind of a struggle. And I hadn't even written the sermon until later this morning, which is pretty abnormal. I usually write it a day or two before and then kind of refresh myself and read it over on Saturdays. But what I noticed this whole week was that people in our community, in our life, they are struggling and there is strife and there is persecution. People that we know have had evil things uttered about them falsely on their account. We, We ourselves had some things in a message we got today uttered falsely on our account. And it's funny because you know that I don't believe in coincidences because this is exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. And it's even funnier because I did wait so long to write the sermon today that God placed my writing process exactly where I needed it in my week process as I was studying and preparing for tonight's message. So what we're going to look at tonight is what the blessed life of a Christian really looks like. And it might surprise you what we're going to read. And we've already read it, but it might surprise you as we break it down. And it might feel a little bit negative, but I promise you, because you all know that I'm a theological optimist, that we're going to find that the life, the blessings that Jesus promises us are richer than what we may selfishly desire. So before we dive into that, we should talk about what we talked about over the last couple weeks. To close this, I can hear the music outside, and that is incredibly distracting. So over the last couple weeks, we worked through the first seven of the Beatitudes, right? We looked at the poor in spirit. We looked at those who mourn their sin, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. And then we we kind of tied those two, the first three and the last three together with verse six. And verse six talked about, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. We talked about how we grow in our sanctification, and when we grow in sanctification, that we do hunger and thirst and yearn for the Lord. And we looked at these as character traits of what a blessed life in Jesus looks like. And we looked at that, and we looked at if we live those things, it will lead us to a place where we want to be righteous, pure in heart. Not in a pietistic way, but instead that our internal actions and our external actions will match each other. We are the same person in Jesus no matter where we are, whether we're in the church, we're in our house, we're outside in the world. We're not living that double-minded, hypocritical life. Instead, we are living a Christ-filled, forgiving, and repentant life. So let's look, jump right in, at what the results of a blessed life in Christ looks like. Chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, I can hear you saying this, but we did go through all of Ecclesiastes, so maybe you aren't saying this anymore. But you said, I thought you said, Craig, that you were an optimist to begin with, but this does not sound particularly optimistic. It makes me think a little bit about the apologetic for the truthfulness of our faith. Because if you were to invent a religion, verses that you would not include in your invented religion are, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. <laughs> so, you know, people are like, oh, I'd like uh, if you like to hear about what your religion has to offer. Well, you will be persecuted and you will be blessed for it. Oh, that's not the one I want to sign up for. But now you understand why I'm a Calvinist, because we don't get to pick. But Jesus here tells us that it actually is a blessed life. That when we are persecuted, it is a blessed life. And since he is God and that his word is authoritative, this statement that he is saying to us must be true. So what gives? That doesn't feel like a blessing that we really want to receive is, is persecution. But what I want to talk about first, before we talk about what the blessing is, we need to talk about what the blessing of persecution is not. Separate from all of the care and the suffering of the people in our community, Kristen and I were surrounded by an incredible amount of negativity this week. You know the kinds of people that can find something negative literally about every single situation? And unfortunately, that kind of negativity becomes really contagious. That's how, that's how people start complaining or gossiping or they highlight their victimhood status and then other people tend to jump in. Yeah, that's really terrible. And then like it, it bubbles over and it's kind of on fire because we're fueled. Sin fuels us to be drawn to these kinds of things, this, this contagiousness of negativity. And it seems to me sometimes that that wave of negativity can feel like it spreads a lot faster than a wave of positivity. We see this all over the broader culture, especially within social media. I, I haven't said it this week yet. You guys should all get off social media. It's really bad for your health. Um, but there are so many people that are wrapped up in their negativity, right? They, their perse uh, persecution, their victimhood status, whether it's real or imagined, and a lot of it's imagined. And then they want to drag other people along. And then they get the endorphin fill because they get the reassurance of their negativity and their victimhood through other people and their keyboards. It, it's kind of like that snowball that's racing down the hill and it's slowly getting larger and larger and larger and larger until it takes you out at the very bottom of the hill. That's the negativity I'm talking about. There are people that become defined through their negativity. See, this can also happen as it, it relates specifically to persecution. People can allow their identity to be run by their persecuted status. Again, real or imagined. They become defined by it. And then they want others to know that they are defined by their victimhood or their persecuted status. And it happens in the church world. If we talk about those hyper-pious people, those we talked about last week, those merit badge wearing, kind of the super Christian-y sash. You get all your little pious merit badges for all the cool Christian things you do, and you can tell everybody else how you're a more pious and righteous Christian than they are. They, they uh, piously humble brag about all the things and the accomplishments that they have in the church. What's interesting about some of those folks, some of those folks will many times be also defined by some level of perceived persecution that they have received either in or out of the church and they become living martyrs of it. It just becomes like this extra glowingness of their piety. So is that what Jesus is talking about? No. Resoundingly, no. 
First, as hard as this may be to stomach, we are actually victims of nothing. The only real victim is Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God who is hanging on a tree for our sins. That is an incredibly important perspective for us as we are going through our life and thinking about the things that are happening. Now, I do not mean that to make light of suffering and persecution that takes place, because suffering is real, it is painful, and persecution is real. And I know many in here have been suffering over the last week, but we aren't victims. There's a big difference between that. Christ was the victim on our behalf for our sin which then leaves us with persecution and suffering, which we know are real. We actually know that they're promised in this world. We've experienced them. You've all experienced them. And I guarantee all of us will experience them at some level, great or small, in the future. So let's look again at verse 10 with that in mind. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's blessed? Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not all people who are persecuted are blessed. Just like when we looked at mourning, not all people who mourn are blessed. You have to be mourning the right thing. You have to be persecuted for the right thing. It depends what we're being persecuted for. And we keep coming back to that word righteousness. Righteousness is that thing that we hunger and we thirst for as we grow in our sanctification, that thing that we desire, we yearn. God and his righteousness become the objects of our affection, of our desire. So what Jesus is saying is that when we are persecuted, because we are seeking the righteousness, that thing that we hunger and thirst for, then we are blessed. Then we inherit the kingdom of heaven. So what this really means is that our suffering and our persecution for him and his kingdom has purpose. And that's where the optimistic side comes in. It doesn't mean that we live a life that was without suffering, is without persecution, but we are blessed because if it is for his righteousness then it's good. So then is our persecution troubling us or is it liberating us? So he goes on in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's so many things in this one verse. First, he says people will revile you. He says they will persecute you. Oh, also they will lie and utter all kinds of evil against you. Oh, and it's false, by the way. And then... He tells us that it's because of his account that these things will happen. (laughs) This is legitimately why I love Family Inclusive Church. Like, this is my favorite part of all of this. It's just everybody gets to be real, and I just so, it's so good. I love you guys so much. But see, Jesus experienced all of these things. He was reviled. He was hated. He had evil uttered about him, and he was ultimately persecuted. In the worst ways, right? He was nailed to the cross. He was convicted to die in one of the most painful ways that a human being can die. Jesus suffered persecution. And then we're told to follow him. We are told to walk the path that he has laid before us. To act in the ways that he acted. To live a life under his authority. So it only rationally... It should rationally work in our mind that if he was persecuted for that we're probably going to be persecuted too. If he suffered, how do we expect that we're not going to suffer? Because if we're walking in this path of truth and life in a world that is influenced by Satan and darkness, we absolutely must expect to be persecuted. Satan is the father of lies, right? And we know that Satan has has influence. God has control. We have already won. That's why I'm an optimist. But we know that 
that Satan is impactful and Satan is real and he is the father of lies. And if there are people in darkness impacted by Satan, we can expect lies. Chris and I know this. We have literally been under attack since our life together started. (laughs) And as we have right-sized our life and as our priorities changed and as the internal and the external started to match and we stopped, especially me, I don't think it was really you, stopped living a double-minded life and started living a single-minded life, the attacks have only increased disproportionately. And what's really sad about it is we've experienced it outside and inside the church. It's funny, I heard Toby Sumter, who's a pastor in Idaho, a man I really respect. He was on a Christian news program that I listen to every day. And he was talking about blessing enemies, right? We're commanded to bless our enemies. And he was talking, he speaks to people about this and they kind of respond. And so then he asks them, he says, name your enemies. And these people, a majority of these people would look this like, oh, well, I mean, I, I can't actually name. And then he says to them, that's because you don't stand on anything. If you stand for something, you will have enemies and you will know them by name. It's true. If you stand on something, if you stand firm on something, you're going to make some enemies. We know this firsthand. Because when we stand firm, we stand firm on the truth of Scripture, and we live a life according to God's word, we will have enemies. Kristen and I have enemies for standing firm on the foundation of our faith. We just look at the Beatitudes we've read so far. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the Lord. That is exactly the opposite of what our current culture tells people what blessings really are. If you were to write the ugly attitudes for 2022, they might sound a little something like this. Blessed are the self-sufficient. Blessed are those with big houses and fancy cars. Blessed are those with the most likes on Instagram. Blessed are the YouTubers. Blessed are those who scream the loudest and demand the most. Blessed are the intersectional victims whose victimhood is their identity. Do you see the difference? I mean, the ugly attitudes are not nearly as nice as the Beatitudes. Because the Beatitudes and God's commands actually takes us out of ourselves. It stops being about us and it turns into the service of the Lord and caring for the Lord's people. But the world today is all about service of self. It's all about fulfilling the desire to make me what I want. Just me, 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 me. That's why if you live a Christ-filled life, people will hate you and they will revile you because you are pushing against the very grain of how the world is operating right now. And they did this with Jesus too. Luke 15 too. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. I'm sure it was more than grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. John reminds us too about our status of the world as he recites Jesus' words in John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus was persecuted. We too as his followers should expect the same. But our persecution is only blessed when it is for his righteousness sake. So the real question is, are you, are you aware of your persecution? Are you aware of where it is coming from? Are you a victim to the world? Or are you standing firm in your faith and receiving righteous persecution? 
because it's important. If you're receiving worldly persecution because you're not playing by the right set of worldly rules, that's a lot different than receiving worldly persecution for playing by God's rules and standing firm in that. It's an important distinction to make because standing firm against the pagan world will lead you to be righteously persecuted. I promise you. Sounds like the Debbie Downer of the night. Promised persecution. But remember, this can be liberating or it can be troubling. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be glad. Those two words are actually commandments. They are imperatives in Greek. This is not a choice. God tells you, you must rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great in heaven. Now, I don't particularly love the word reward because the, the challenge with the word reward is it sounds like it's a little bit works-based. If you do this, you get that. But that's not like that. We know that our faith is not works-based. But we should expect benefits to our faith. It's not quid pro quo. We don't put $25 or 25 cents in the God vending machine and then God gives us part of a Snickers bar outside of it. That's not the way it works. But there are benefits to our faith. God doesn't reward us because we live perfect, pious lives, right? That's not how it works. But we are rewarded because we are the adopted sons and daughters of God. He's our father. He loves us. He cares for us. He's forgiven us. We, those of you with children, we do this with our kids. We give them gifts and rewards because we love them. Not because they can do it. Our children really can't do anything for us. I mean, soon when I'm old. There will be many things you can do for me. Honor thy father and mother. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> uh, it's so much fun. But we don't, we don't reward them in this quid pro quo. We, we, we reward out of love. We should expect benefits of our faith. Those are good things. God has adopted us. He has chosen us. So there is going to be benefit for us through him. If we were to translate that Greek word, it would literally mean the remuneration uh, for work done or recognition, usually by God, for the moral quality of an action, which makes sense if we think of these things as the framework of our character. We talked about the Beatitudes and how they shape, sanctify us, but they change character. Well, if we continue to be sanctified and closer to what God created us to be, we should expect that God would recognize that. So we're promised rewards, but not because of our works, but because of the free gift of grace that we receive for being in faith in God, by being God's adopted son and daughter, with all the rights of adopted, or sorry, adopted children, us, have all the rights of naturally born children. We know this with, with my adopted kids, your adopted kids, is that when we adopt children legally, they give you all the rights and benefits for them being your child. It's the same with God. When God adopts us and picks us as his own, we get the benefits of being the bloodline child of his, which includes all of these wonderful things, the great reward in heaven. This is why we get to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. Because Jesus came here with this purpose to save sinners, to redeem the many, God's elect, which means if his suffering, his actual victimhood had purpose, then our suffering most certainly has purpose. It has to have purpose. We believe in a good God, so we have to rejoice in it. You really want to flip the world right on inside its head? Rejoice in your suffering and persecution. Now, 
We don't go seek it out. We're not living martyrs. We're not trying to be defined by it. We don't wear a merit badge so everybody knows how much we've suffered or been persecuted. But we can be glad when it happens. Why? Because our reward is a life with God. It is a life of meaning and a life of purpose. A life that despite the suffering and persecution is full of love and peace and joy and kindness. And these are things that cannot be taken from us. They cannot be stripped from you. They're both here and for eternity. That is so incredibly amazing. These are, are, are things that are permanently yours. So why is it that we get stuck in victimhood and suffering? And I think part of that's because our timeline is too short. We are stuck in this timeline through earthly and temporal eyes. We don't look at it through eternal eyes. But we are eternal people. Do you guys have any idea how long eternity is? No, it is a concept that is incredibly difficult to grasp. But that is what is part of the promise. That our suffering here is temporary. That our persecution here is temporary. But our life with the Lord is forever. It is eternity. And see, that's what puts things and the things that we value in perspective. The car that can fall apart or the big house that needs a lot of repairs or the job that can be taken away at any moment. Our hope isn't in those things. Our salvation isn't in those things. Our hope and our salvation is in eternal things. Our relationship with Jesus Christ being drawn into his loving and warm embrace. It also puts suffering in perspective. This is just for now. I wrote in my email, was it this week? I think it was this week, how much I hate platitudes. I really hate platitudes. This too shall pass. But the reality is that our time here is short, but our time with God is forever. And then the last part in this section is so beautiful, is that we're connected with those that came before us. The prophets and the other believers who suffered are united in faith with us. Because there is nothing new under the sun. Happened to them. It's happening to us. It will happen to our future generations. We can rejoice in the fact that we're not the first. We won't be the last. And the Lord will always be with us all. Just like the Lord is with those who came before us, and they are with the Lord forever, we are with them and the Lord forever together. That's why we are all saints. We are joined together forever as saints. And that's why I love when we move to the next verse how Jesus refers to us as the salt of the earth. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, salt is very valuable. Not only does it add incredible goodness to french fries. Yeah. Who really wants, or potato chips? Salt is magical. Not only does it add incredible tastiness to french fries, but it has another important purpose as well. It preserves. See, Chris and I are lucky. We have two fridges and three freezers, which is good when you feed a big family and a whole lot of y'all every week. But what about before refrigeration? See, before refrigeration, salt had this valuable purpose. It, it preserved meat. Salt, salting things is a way of preserving things. We are salt. We add flavor to life, just like salt adds food to flavor. I would say that this house and these Saturday nights especially and, and the, the coming Sunday mornings are going to be salt and flavor adding. That's what we do. We come together, we add the flavor, we rejoice, and we have this wonderful time as we, we feast on, on the Sabbath Eve. But we also preserve things like biblical faith and like actual salt. If it loses its 
saltiness, it's useless. Adding salt that isn't salty, that's a lot of, that's salt and salty a lot back to back. But adding salt that isn't salty to things doesn't do anything but increase sodium levels. That's all you get out of that, is you get some sodium and not a lot of salty taste. Using bad salt to preserve meat does nothing, the meat just spoils, which is the same with us. If we are not adding joy and gladness to life, what use are we? If we aren't living a Christ-filled life, one that is just a vanity, what use are we? If we are not preserving the faith as transmitted through the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures to us, what good are we? We are the salt then that has lost its taste and we are useless. So it's better than just to toss it on the ground and trample it. It's better, it's better than that than to spoil God's truth. Because our internal must match our external. Which is why Jesus uses another metaphor to, to describe us being a light to the world. Verses 14 through 16 in chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp to put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that you may see your good works, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It is so hard to read that when it says, let your light shine, let little this little light of mine. It's stuck in my head, and I read the verse, and then I hear the song, but I'm trying to read the next part of the verse. The struggles are real. But the reality is you are a light to the world. Most of you are probably familiar with all the analogies that exist with faith and light. They are all over scripture. Darkness refers to death. Light refers to life. We can see this in God's natural creation all around us. These things, the plants, the trees, the animals, most living things grow in the light and die in the darkness. When we light our home, we don't light it and then cover it up. We light it so people can see. We light it so that others can see. John explains this more in detail in 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Light and truth, darkness and sin. God is light. We are to walk in the light. If we are in darkness and we are not practicing the truth, sorry, if we are darkness, we are not practicing the truth, but if we walk in light, then we are in the truth and we are in fellowship with God. This is the same thing that Jesus is telling us in Matthew's gospel. We cannot hide the light of God in us. And Kristen pointed this out when she was reviewing. She said, you should add in there, and she put it in caps. And why would you want to? Why would you want to? The gospel is literally the good news, the life-saving news. Why would you want to? If you're in a place where you're honestly afraid of sharing your light, then I would say that you could be stuck in a place of selfishness and you should probably pray to God to give you the courage that it takes to be his follower. Because if you have God's light, it is ever-present. That's why you come here any day of the week and we will be talking about God. It is an absolute guarantee. Our actions and our words demonstrate our faith. That's why in verse 16, John tells us to let our light shine. He, not, he doesn't just tell us that, he commands us. The word shine is the imperative in Greek in that sentence. He says, you have to let it shine. It's not even a choice. I command you to let your light shine. Our faith must be before other people. 
There's nothing selfish about our faith. Keep coming back to these last few weeks that the best tool of discipleship is living your faith out and engaging with people. It's how you do business. It's how you, it's how you react. It's how you recover from being really grumpy when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed on a Saturday morning. Me. Some days it's hard too. That recovery takes a little bit longer, but it's through faith that we can recover because other people have to see our works. They have to see the fruits of our faith. They have to see how we give glory to God, even when life deals you a big crap sandwich sometimes. We show it to them, and then they too can give glory to God. What good does it do if we say we have faith and yet refuse to live it out? We preserve the authentic faith of the church. We stand firm in our testimony of who Christ is and what he has done and what he is doing for the world. We stand as light in a very, very dark world. But we don't hide our faith or what guides us. Because just remember, a teeny, teeny little bit of light can dispel so much darkness. Dare I say that it is this little light of mine that I'm going to let it shine is what persecution attempts to snuff out. That's what Satan doesn't want. He wants the darkness. He doesn't even want that little teeny little bit of flicker of light. So you know what? If you're being persecuted, bless you. Your light must be shining. It's because of all these things, us living our faith out in actual ways and character-changing ways, that we can expect our persecution to come. Do you not think that this type of selfless, joyful, and grace-filled living must royally piss off the devil? It really pisses off the world. It brings an opportunity for, that, for us to show them that life is so much more meaningful than the stuff that you have. This is exactly the opposite of what Satan wants. Satan wants you to be dead in your sin. He wants you to throw in the towel because it's hard to be joyful when all that crap is stacked against you. He wants you to turn away from Jesus' words, and he wants you to live in your own selfish mind with your own intellect, trying to drive the bus all by yourself. I recently heard somebody say that when, whenever somebody doesn't want to acknowledge the authority of God or live under God's authority, they're usually more than willing to fill that job vacancy. We are not in control. There's somebody way better and way smarter and way more loving and way more patient and way more peaceful and way more graceful in control. And thank God, because we all worship something, right? What we worship is what actually matters. That's why this morning I did not feel like rejoicing and being glad. I don't know why. I woke up on the wrong side of the universe this morning. And for no, I don't even know why. I, I can't even tell you what actually happened for me to move from mostly happy, kind of rolling out of bed into kind of really grumpy for a few hours. We'd been experiencing some pretty direct persecution. And when, when we were reading it and I was going through some of this, I kind of got in my own head instead of <laughs> responding faithfully with the way God has told me to respond. I got stuck in my feelings instead of rejoicing that I'm counted among God's elect and that I get to be persecuted for his name. We should all strive to be like the apostles in Acts 5. This is my favorite part of Acts. So they've been arrested. The apostles have been arrested. They've been set free. Acts 5, 40 through 42. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. 
People were stoning them. Not the fun Colorado kind. They were stoning them to death for saying these kinds of things. So what did they do? Did they roll over to tyrants that told them that they couldn't share in God's name? No, they rejoiced. They rejoiced for being counted worthy to suffer worldly dishonor for Christ's name. They stood firm. They continued to preach. They told the truth despite the persecution and the threats. And you know what they did? They rejoiced because of it. Can you imagine what the council must have thought seeing a bunch of rejoicing apostles? I imagine them skipping. Skipping out, rejoicing that they had suffered for keeping the truth of Jesus Christ and then going on about their business and continuing to do it. Why did they do this? Because they were the salt of the earth and they were a light on the hill. They refused to be covered. They refused to back down. They refused to cave under pressure. They didn't stop because the world told them to. Instead, they rejoiced and kind of just kept at it. The church needs more men like this. We need more churches like this. This is what we continue to pray to be. A place of just rowdy and joyous and graceful and forgiving and repentant peacemakers who are not afraid of conflict. That's why I am just so positive about these blessings because we are actually commanded to rejoice and be glad. So rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. You will be reunited with your creator. Christian, your reward is eternal. It cannot be taken from you. It is loving and it is good. Rejoice indeed. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. We're grateful for the difficulties in our life. We're grateful for the love that you give us unconditionally. We're so grateful that you sent your son to die on our behalf so that we could grow closer to you. So Lord, lift us up this week. Lift us up in our sufferings and our persecution. Allow us all to rejoice and be glad, to proudly to to proudly proclaim the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Allow us not to shrink into fear when tyrants push us, but to stand firm and to laugh and to rejoice. All this we pray in your mighty name. Amen.